During the Chinese Cultural Revolution, totalitarian control was carried forth by undermining traditional family values, attacking the family unit, and through public displays of violence, violent killings, all done through these mass humiliation kind of mob trials called struggle sessions, all for the purpose of striking terror into the hearts of people. Because if you can strike terror into someone's heart, into a nation's heart, then you can control society. Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, relentlessly pursue truth, and own the future. We are continuing today our series on totalitarian cults, totalitarian states, totalitarian ideologies that are lurking around for people to destroy. Now, when we say the word totalitarian, normally people think of of governments, massive communist movements, and, and it is, but they can also exist in smaller groups of people. Totalitarian ideologies can exist in groups of two, four people. It can exist in small religious cults of 10 to 20 people. It can can exist in social justice movements of hundreds and thousands of people. Or it can exist in communist China and Russia with hundreds of millions, if not a billion plus people. The size of the group doesn't matter, but it's the ideas, the ideology that's driving the movement that matters that we need to watch out for. And why are we talking about this here on the show? Well, it's because here on the show, we know and we believe that our thoughts, the things that we think, the smallest little seeds of thought will grow up into massive root systems and trees in our life. The things that we think affect our emotions, which affect our actions, and our actions over time become our behaviors and our habits and our destiny. We need to be aware of the things that we think and the ideologies in the earth so that we can protect ourselves against them. Because as we'll see with communist China today, that it this totalitarian uh ideology didn't take the nation in a day. It was a, it was a slow movement of strike after strike after strike of people being lied to and deceived for decades until before they knew it, they were locked in bondage. They had been brainwashed. They had lost their family members. They had turned on their family members. Their entire nation was destroyed with losses of tens of millions of people over a few short decades. And this this happened less than a hundred years ago. These these are not far off ideas. These are not far off history. We are not beyond this point in human history. We are not better than that. We have not learned our lessons. These ideas are prevalent today And if we are not aware of them, we will not defend ourselves and our families, our communities, and our nations against these toxic ideologies that look really nice and really great on the outside, promising a utopia, promising a brave new world, promising a a, a new man, a, a more moral way of living. But 
when you peel back the skin, you see the same game being played every time. And we, we started this series talking about the green grocer and how it's through people with independent thought, like you and I, it is through our independent thought that we are able to actually break the back of these totalitarian systems and this totalitarian control. Independent thought is the most dangerous thing to any totalitarian cult. In the next episode, we talked about the six traits of totalitarian cults or groups, and we went through what those six traits are. In the, in the third episode, we talked about the French Revolution and how they sent 16,000 people to the guillotines largely without trial. How they did away with the calendar and try to set up a new calendar. Why? Because totalitarian cults want complete and utter control of the history of the narrative to make everything in an isolated, closed-loop system. And we're going to see that happen again with communist China. And today, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about communist China. Now, when, as, man, as I began to look and dig deep into the history of, of China and how, how communism came to be and the effects of communism in China, I was blown away at, at some of the horrible atrocities, which we'll cover, we'll, we'll hit on today in this episode, but it was also blown away by the, the depth. I mean, there is just so much history that needs to be covered in order to do a really exemplary job at what happened and, and why these ideas took root in China. So today, we're not going to be able to give a super detailed look at everything at, at you know, year by year, moment by moment events, but we are for sure going to take a, a 30,000 foot view as we examine these ideas. And we're going to pull out a couple key ideas, right? Because we're talking about these totalitarian states, and what they do and how we can defend against it today and where we can see it actually beginning to manifest itself today. And so some of the key ideas that we're going to talk about is is first, the undermining of religious values, morals, and norms. Second, the attack on the family unit, attacking family. Why? Why do they attack families? whether you're in a cult of 12 people or, or a totalitarian state of a billion people, why do they attack the family unit? Because the family unit is the first and last defense against totalitarian ideologies in the state. Why is that? Because if you have a strong family, you can have a place of safety, you can have a place of trust, you can have a place of of provision, of knowing that you're going to be able to eat, that you're going to have people who who are around you, who will vouch for you. But if you can destroy that fabric of the family unit, if you can break it down, then you can force people to be reliant on the government and be filled with terror, not knowing who we can trust. And we talked about this in the six, six traits of totalitarian groups. They destroy trust. They make sure that you are filled with terror where you don't know who to trust. So you trust your oppressor because they're gaslighting you the whole time. They attack family. And the way that they do this, which we're going to talk about, is through these things called 
struggle sessions. Struggle sessions were these were these uh, mock trials, these show trials, where they would pull um, landowners, business owners, or uh, you know, rightists, anti-revolutionaries, people who resisted the communist movement and party and ideologies whether they did or not, or whether they're in the party and they just didn't fully follow all the party lines, they'd pull them up in front of these mock trials where a mob of people would surround them and berate them and and accuse them of just bizarre crimes. And if they did not confess to their crimes, they would be murdered, publicly beaten, killed, sometimes cannibalized, And if they did confess, either they would still be murdered or they'd be sent to re-education internment camps. And oftentimes, their family would also, just by association, be lumped in with them and and they'd lose family members. And so family would turn against family. So we're going to be talking about these things. But before we get really deep into their tactics, their methodology in achieving their goals, I I thought it would be best to give a a very cursory overlook at the history that got China to that place and how the Communist Party gained control in China. Because as we'll see, they started with a very, very small number of people amongst the nation of 600 million people back in the 1920s. So we're going to see that right now. So we're going to start back in 1840. Now, in 1840, China was largely still under the the feudal system. They still uh, were not entering into the the modern era. And there were some events that happened between 1840 and 1921 when the Communist Party was first established in China. One of those events was was a, a French invasion which really damaged the country, which kind of woke China up to say, we, we are living in what's beginning to be a globalist world and we need to enter the modern era. There was the, the, the Sino-Japanese War in the, I believe, 1870s, which really devastated China. And they saw that with all this new weaponry and machinery that they needed to, they needed to address this issue, otherwise they would lose China. And then after World War I, even though China was victorious in World War I, they weren't really recognized by the, the global leadership at that time. And they were a little hurt at the fact that they didn't get some of their needs and their demands met. So what happened was, in 1920, they began to look for alliances or began to look for allies. And who did they happen to find But that's right, communist Russia in the north, the USSR. The USSR had adopted uh, a Stalin Marxist ideologies. Now, Stalin Marxist ideologies largely were were ideologies that, I mean, there's a long history of, of Marx and Engels and where they got their thoughts and what really it means. At, at that time, it was the the proletariat or the working class versus the bourgeoisie, and it was this class war. Now it's adopted, it has been morphed since then from beyond just class to what's called um, 
critical race theory or intersectionality where the, where the Marxists in the 60s and 70s realized that class was, was just too big and broad and capitalism actually worked. So they had to move it to, you know, people of power to people who are disempowered and, and they broke it down into, you know, minorities or disempowered people. So they started with women and then they started with minority races. And that's what we're seeing manifest around us today. But the, the beginning of the ideas that Marx actually took his ideas from, which we have talked about here previously on the show, was that he adopted his ideas from Darwin, from social Darwinism. Now, social Darwinism says that in order for humanity to move forward, in order for us to reach a, a new moment and stage of enlightenment, in order for us to progress as a human race, there needs to be struggle and there needs to be conflict, just like you know we, we, we see in evolutionary theology, in evolutionary ideas that it's a survival of the fittest. And so social Darwinism says, well, the same thing happens within social groups, that it's the fittest, the strongest who will end up winning. And that is how we will progress the human race. Because if we're breeding among weak people, we're just going to get more weak people. So we need to wipe that class of society out. And we need to come forth with a brave new world, a brave new man, and a new utopian society. So within these ideologies of Lenin Marxism and communism, which communism is the mechanism that moves a society from being non-socialistic to socialistic. And once you reach your socialism ideology and ideals, then you don't no longer need communism to mold a society into that. So but the, the problem, <laughs> they don't see it as a problem, but we see it as a problem. The problem with communistic ideologies is that it needs bloodshed and violence and struggle in order for it to move forward. It is a movement. It is a progression and it's progressive. So with every 10 Seven to 20 years, there needs to be another re-eating and re-churning of the old guard because we need to continue to press forward into our utopian society until it is reached. So 1921, leaders in China are looking for a new path, a new way forward, and they find communist ideology. But the problem is, in, in 1922, the CCP, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, was very small. In a nation of 600 million people, there was only 195 members in 1922 of the Chinese Communist Party. And they have adopted these ideas of, of a, a utopia to come. But with in order to achieve that utopia, there needs to be a couple things that happens. One... We need to destroy history, tradition, and we need to do away with private land ownership. We need to do away with capitalism. We need to do away with landlords. And we need a violent revolution to remake all of society bottom to top. And these ideas were very anti 
traditional Chinese society. So in 1922, there's only 195 communist members. And so they were encouraged by the USSR. They said, hey, look, you guys are are small at the time. You, You haven't seen the progress that you really need to see in a short period of time. So what you need to do, you need to join yourself with the KMT. The KMT was the nationalist, the Chinese nationalist party who were in power. And so these 195 members join in with the KMT and then begin to garner power from the KMT and at the same time be very subversive with the group, with the organization, openly speaking out against the very party that they were in. But their their tactics were very successful because within six short years, by 1928, the number of the CCP grew from 195 in 22 to 30,000 members in 1928 in the party. And some of the ways that they did this were they, they mobilized the people, they mobilized the farmers or the peasants or the working class. And they said, the farmers, they are the most most valiant members of our society. And so they incited them to riot and fight. And these riots were often stopped by the National Guard, were often stomped out by the KMT, by the the ruling party. But what, what the CCP knew from the very beginning was that they needed to undermine and destroy family values, destroy religious values, to destroy their heritage and their history so that they could use people to carry out their nefarious deeds like war, like killing, like fighting, like turning in their family members. Because in in traditional China, the familiar system, the the families, was was supreme. You know, honoring your parents and, and caring for your family was number one was number one, but they need to undermine that to say, no, no longer it's number one, but it's now number two, three, or four, or five, and you need to first put the party first. You need to first think about the party, and if there's any dissonance with your family, you need to turn your mother or your brother or your father or your sister in. And oftentimes there were cases where, you know, this, the father would be torturing their sons or their sons would be torturing their, their fathers or mothers because they had dissonant ideas. But in order to do this, they needed to break down the family values, which, which we'll see. But in 1927, in between 25 and 27, as the, the CCP is beginning to grow, they still don't have power. They're still part of the KMT, but they're beginning to incite these uprisings among villages. And they're they're starting to say, hey, look, they go to the peasants and they say, look, these landowners are evil and corrupt. They're capitalists. You people are the supreme being of our society. You peasants who are farming the land. What happened at the time, there'd be landowners. The landowners would rent out their land to the peasants, the peasants would farm the land, have a place to live. It's very much like a feudal system. They were able to then pay rent and they'd take care of the land, which was actually, there was a great relationship that was going on. 
but they went and they incited violence and they caused the peasants to turn against the landowners. And they would label these landowners as anti-revolutionaries, as evil capitalists. And they would pull these landowners into the public square and they'd cause all the, the village to gather. And then they'd begin to publicly berate and shame and accuse the landowners of these crimes, not just the landowners, but their family, their, anyone who worked for them, anyone in their close association. So people would begin to turn on one another because they don't want to be publicly shamed either. And what would happen is, as I've mentioned before, if they did not confess, they would be killed. If they didn't confess to all the crimes. And then oftentimes, if they did confess, they'd, one of two things would happen. They'd still be killed. Why? Because the CCP is planning on taking all the land and all of their possessions from them and giving it back to the peasants, redistributing it, which lasted for a few years before the party took it back from the peasants. But then also, they they didn't want the, the landowner to be around to seek revenge of some sort, so they'd often kill them and kill their whole family. Why? Because you're guilty by association. You weren't guilty by what you did, but you were guilty by the class that you were born into. And so China, the CCP in China, in the rural areas, began to break down the system and began to strike fear in the hearts of of families, where families are beginning to turn against one another. Now, this was a, a tactic that was used in the 20s in the USSR, where there would be these public show trials where there's all these false accu- accusations, baseless crimes, and then, and then the person is executed. So they're, they're using the same, the very same tactics, tactics that we can begin to see happen again today in modern Western society. Because of someone's, the color of someone's skin, they are automatically guilty because of their gender, they're guilty. Because someone's spouse says something, the other spouse is held responsible and people are, are no longer able to have jobs. They're getting fired because of something they say or something that they believe. And these are the very things that would happen in communist China. If you were labeled as a rightist, as a quote-unquote reactionary or anti-revolutionary, someone that wasn't part of the par- the party, your livelihood was stripped away from you so you couldn't work, you couldn't eat, your family would turn against you because if your family had any sort of emotional connection, they would go after your family. So oftentimes, they'd murder one of the spouses and then they'd go and interrogate the, the fathers and the children. There's a story where the, the mother was labeled an anti-revolutionary and she was killed. And so they brought the daughters and the fathers in to be interrogated and said, your mother was killed. What do you think? And they had to stand there with stoic faces being like, oh, well, you know, anything for the party. Did you have any strong relationships with your mother? Did you love her? No. And then as the father is, is taking his little girls home, they're, they're crying and he has to silence his girls. He's like, you have to be quiet. The neighbors cannot hear you crying because if you have emotions 
over your mother, that means you are an anti-revolutionary like her and they're going to come for you. This is, this is what happened just a few decades ago. And we're seeing the rise of this again in cancel culture all across the world. It's not just in, in one nation. It is a global phenomenon that is beginning to happen that we need to be aware of. So now at this time, the CCP begins to incite these riots. They begin using the disempowered to wage war against landowners and the wealthy. Oftentimes they would hold wealthy people hostage until they gave over all of their wealth, hold them hostage, beat them, torture them, torture their family until they gave over all their wealth. There's their estimates in these, this period of time in the late twenties that over a hundred thousand landowners and landlords were killed. And oftentimes their families were killed too because they needed the farmers to have they, well, they needed to take away the land from these landowners, because again, land is something that provides a living. Land is something that provides stability and sustenance. So if they can take the land away from the landowners, if they can steal the land away and give it to the peasants, well, now, which was which what happened a few years later, they then took the land away from the peasants and created these co-ops, making these peasants slaves to the state, because there's no such thing as public land. There's privately owned land or government owned land. There's no such thing as publicly owned land, but that's the the premise that they were giving. But they used these farmers to take down through mob rule landowners and capitalists. But in this time, uh, the CCP, even when in, in 1929, when they had about 30,000 members in their party, they didn't have enough power to take on the Nationalist Party. Their, their army was very small, and they just weren't able to take them on. And so until the, the second Sino-Japanese War happened in 1937, the, the CCP was still just doing these kind of small subversive uprisings all over the country, riots, protests, riots, protests, these public struggle sessions where they would essentially railroad these landowners with false accusations, but they still weren't able to seize the power like they wanted to. And then here comes the second Sino-Japanese war in 1937, where the Red CCP army said, hey, we only have about 70,000 troops. We can't really do any damage against the Japanese. The, the KMT, the Nationalist Party, had 1.7 million soldiers, armed soldiers. So the CCP can't take on the KMT. They can't overthrow them. They would lose in one small battle. So the CCP went into the interior of China and hid during the Sino-Japanese War, so that the KMT would lose their power. And so during this time, the CCP would kind of say, oh, you know, we're, 
were all united in this fight against China when really they were just using the KMT to fight against China and they were using this time to expand their influence rather than fighting against Japan the CCP rather than fighting against Japan they were going throughout the back countries of China to essentially build their army to overthrow the Nationalist Party. So this was an eight-year war. And then on the, on the heels of the liberation of China, where the KMT finally wins over Japan, a few years later, the CCP strikes and attacks the KMT. One of the tactics that they used during this time is they would, they would take entire villages of unarmed civilians and they would rush them to the front of their lines so that the KMT would have to shoot unarmed civilians or surrender. Well, the, the KMT, they actually had some sort of religious moral value compass left and they didn't want to kill unarmed people. So they'd end up surrendering. And if they didn't surrender, then the CCP would use that as propaganda against the KMT. So they're using humans as as bullets. They're using these humans just to slaughter them. These these tribes or these, these villages of peasants just to slaughter them as their unarmed army, as propaganda pieces. So it was at this time in the the end of the 1940s into the 1950s that they began to really gain a strong, significant power in China. And once they gained this power, they began to purge society in what was called the rectification period. And this is where any thoughts or any people who resisted the ideologies, whether it's in the far past or in the present, were labeled as anti-revolutionaries, traitors, and were killed. And if they weren't killed, they were then put through um, these these struggle sessions where they're they're accused and humiliated. They would hang these blackboards over their neck and they'd bend over 90 degrees with their hands behind their back as moms of people shouted and yelled at them and, and beat them publicly shamed them publicly until they confessed to their crimes. And it wouldn't matter if they did anything. It's just if they were a part of the the KMT party, you were guilty. If you were a landlord, you were guilty. If you were a business owner, you were guilty. They would force people, kids included, to to write down the names of all of their family members, all of their, their relations. They would have them recount childhood experiences and what they thought or what they felt about them to try to understand what were the people actually thinking. And then they would use their personal history and life events against them if any of their ideologies, any of their history didn't align with the party's deeds. And they'd have these struggle sessions, these same shame sessions where they'd bring people in and they would force them to confess to their quote-unquote, crimes of having ideas and saying, you're right, you know, I was wrong in this, I need to do better, and I'm just going to begin to repeat the party mantra, and I can't have any idea that exists outside of the party mantra. 
And then after they would confess these things, then the parties can decide whether this person is going to live or die. And oftentimes they would be allowed to live. They'd be sent to prison only till, you know, at some unknown time, they'd be called back up onto the quote unquote butcher block into another struggle session where they would be executed because Mao's ideology was we need to kill people in order to dominate society, in order to strike fear into society. It was in 1952 that 2.4 million anti-revolutionaries were killed, 2.4 million. And some estimate that 5 million of the KMT party were actually killed and that 10 million died during the land reform. Now, all these things happen. So now here you're looking at, you're looking at 17 million people just there. Some estimates show. And then what happened was in 1959 to 1961, there's something called the Great Famine. Now, this famine wasn't brought on by any natural disaster. Actually, the weather was great during those years. But the, the CCP pulled all the farmers away from their fields so that they would work in, in steel mills. And they let all their, their crops rot and die. And so there's also this low shortage of food. But any, any, any province that didn't produce enough food would be punished. So then the people were falsely reporting how much grain and rice they produced from their farms. And then they were taxed on that false report. So all of their produce was taken from these peasants who were once the pride and joy of the communist party because they overthrew the landowners. And they took that all away and they would actually lock these peasants who now didn't own the land, but they're in these communes. They'd lock them in these communes and they weren't even allowed to leave and go to the city to beg for food. They estimate, some estimate up to 40 million people died between 59 and 61 from a man-made Famine. I mean, just unbelievable. Unbelievable. The CCP continued to use lies to justify violence. They continued to alter and conceal history, and they continued to use those closed loops of manipulative justice. They'd say, Murder is not allowed, except if someone betrays the party, then murder is perfectly justified. You need to honor your father and mother, except if they're counter-revolutionaries, then you need to turn them in. The CCP purged remnants of any sort of capitalism, any sort of traditional values, and any sort of Chinese society. And this is, this is not just myth. This is clearly outlined in the Chinese communist documents where they outline the, the abolition of the family unit, stripping away any sort of religious semblance of Taoism or Buddhism. So what they began to do was they began to destroy temples. They began to destroy monuments. They began to destroy all of their sacred and holy texts. They kicked monks out and made monks to either rejoin secular life 
or they sent them to the front lines to fight as soldiers, which is, you know, very much so against Buddhist morality and against Taoism morality of, of killing and taking life. Guys and girls, like when you see a movement of tearing down statues, tearing down monuments, destroying history, attacking religious institutions, you can probably be sure that there are totalitarian ideologies that are starting small, but will lead to mass control of the people. Mass control. What the CCP began to do, they realized they couldn't just destroy Buddhism all at once, but they realized they needed to actually infiltrate Buddhism themselves. So they would place CCP members whose ideology is very anti-Buddhism into Buddhist monks and rose them up to the, the highest positions. At one point in 1952, there was a a Buddhist convention. And at this convention, the CCP attended the convention. And they began, the CCP members within Buddhism began to propose doing away with Buddhist morality, with the Buddhist tradition. They began to propose freedom of religion, saying that we need to do away with monks, do away with nuns, do away with with any sort of religious practice. And at this meeting, there was uh, one of the leaders of the actual Buddhist monks. His name was Master Shu Yong. He was at the meeting and he stood up and he appealed for the preservation of Buddhist tradition, of Buddhist dress, of Buddhist of values and moralities, um, you know, Buddhists and, and Taoists believe that they shouldn't shave their beard or head and they they were forced to shave. That's what they were saying. Like we need to, they're not allowed to wear beards. He stood up to say, hey, I think we should preserve this part of our history. Well, you can imagine what happened. He was shamed. He was beaten. His skull was crushed. And then he was held in a room for days on end, without food or water, without even being allowed to leave and use the bathroom, he was 112 years old, bashed in skull. They left him there. When they came back a few days later, and they found him still alive, lying on the ground. They beat him some more. The CCP went on to take over complete control of all the religions, of Taoism, of Buddhism, and of Christianity. Why? Because they needed to destroy morality in order to push and desensitize people in the, in the killings and in the violence. So there's no moral ground to stand on. There is no God. There's only the state. In 1950, a man named Wu Long Dong started the Three Self Church their ideology to the three self church was self administration, self support, and self propaganda, all to quote unquote fight imperialism. It was a state controlled church. Now, notice the same the same group who said, "Well, maybe we should have freedom of religion." When 
Wu Lao's friend decided not to join this three self church. He was thrown in jail for 20 years. This purported church that, you know, follows Jesus denies his miracles, denies heaven. And so it's like, it's, it's not even religion. It's not even Christianity. The same with Buddhism. They just stripped out all the morality. Why? Because they needed to control the people. In 1951, they forced nuns to marry and they forced monks to fight on the front lines. They forced the Uyghur people to eat pork. They openly mocked religion so that people would not turn to it to find strength, to find protection, to find morality, to find a a strong semblance of a family unit. Another tactic that they used was was the trapped intellectuals. They started this movement called Let 100 Flowers Bloom and 100 Schools of Thought Contend. And as they, they let this movement go on, they invited intellectuals and critics of the CCP to openly criticize the CCP in the name of tolerance, in the name of progression. But really, it was just a trap. There's another story of Li Wei Han, who is the minister of the United Worker, United Front Work Department. Now, he was a member of the CCP, and he called a, a, an intellectual by the name of Zhang Bu Zhong to a rectification meeting. Remember, these rectification meetings is where they bring someone in to purportedly hear their side and hear their thoughts, and then... They trap them, they berate them, they shame them, they label them anti-revolutionaries. But here, Zhang thinks that, oh, this is, you know, they want to hear my ideas. So he comes into this meeting and they, they have a, you know, a nice room. He sits in the front sofa and he shares his ideas with Lee and just open criticism. And Lee's asking him very thoughtful questions. But Lee was setting a trap. And after after the meeting was done, Zhang was labeled the number one anti-revolutionary rightist in China. And his fate was sealed. Among, uh, along with 550,000 other intellectuals in that season. Trapping intellectuals by saying, hey, you have freedom of speech. Now that you've spoken freely, you are an anti-revolutionary and you will pay the consequences through being shamed in these struggle sessions. In these sessions where the mob comes after you and they take away your right to work, they take away your means of, of, of making a living, they, they attack your family, your family turns on you, intellectuals turn on each other out of, of fear of losing their lives. And many lost their lives. If these intellectuals didn't submit to the humiliation, if they didn't admit to their quote-unquote crimes, if they didn't renounce everything that they believed and fall lockstep in with the party's movement, they were killed. They were killed. Because it isn't a rule of law anymore. It's not based on what you do or don't do. But it is 
you're guilty by implication. If you were related to someone or if you held a class, you are instantly guilty based on the class that you're in. If you were a landlord, if you are rich, if you are reactionary, if you are rightists. Now, as we mentioned before, these terms have morphed and changed. And now this, these same ideologies are seen through a different lens called critical race theory, a different lens called social Marxism, where instead of it being the landlord, which it still is, it's being the landlord being rich or being rightist, it's being white, it's being male, it's being cisgendered, it's being what is your... What is your your origin in your race? And they said that this theory is called class origin theory. They said one's nature, listen to this, one's nature is determined by the class into which one is born. The same thing happens today. Your nature is determined by the skin that you were born with. Your privilege is determined by your skin or your class that you were born with and you are guilty or innocent based on your privilege. And if you don't confess your racism, if you don't confess your privilege, if you don't confess how you're compliant and, uh, and, and play a part in these quote unquote systems of racism, if you don't confess that, then you are canceled, you lose your job, you are blocked, your family is attacked, all of these same totalitarian tactics that we see used in Maoist China is manifesting today. And these were all used to destroy trust among the family units. When you see the, hey, if I don't speak up against my mom and my dad, I'm going to be killed too. If the mom and the dad don't speak up against their kids, they're going to be killed. If there is no morality, if we have erased all of our our religious history, all of our morality, if it's all gone, and everything is these public shamings, these public killings, and this mob mentality, this is where it leads. I want to end end this episode by, by reading a quote the Black Lives Matters About Us page. This is a direct quote from the Black Lives Matter website. Now, I want you to remember, totalitarian ideologies, communist Maoist China, in their founding document said, we must destroy the family unit. Why? Because the family unit is the last defense and a place of safety against totalitarian ideologies and rule. The family unit is a place where you are able to think differently than other people. If you can disintegrate that, if you can destroy that, then there's no safe place. There's no such thing as trust. There's no safe haven that you can turn for financial security. If you destroy land, there's no... There's no safe place that you can turn if you destroy land ownership. These were the foundational ideologies of Maoist, Marxist, China. And here's the Black Lives Matters website. 
and I quote, We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as, quote unquote, extended families, comrade, extended families, and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Notice, Black Lives Matter wants to disrupt the family unit, the the nuclear family unit. One mom, one dad, and we are in charge over our kids. No, they say, we want to raise your children. We want to be raised as a village. These are the same ideas, the same ideology that was used in China, that's used in North Korea. The children are, are the prime members of our society. They are the you know, the gods of the earth, we must take care of them, the most honored members of society. Now you might say, well, what's so, what's so wrong about having people being raised in a, in a village? What's so wrong about destroying the, the normative Western model of, of family? Well, if you see in, in the story of, of communist China, through them it being able to break up loyalty to the family, and instead of having loyalty to your family, to, to the safety of your home, your loyalty is now to the ideology. Your loyalty is now to the party. Your loyalty is not to, to your own family, your own thoughts, your own parents. It is you are rewarded by turning your parents in. You become an honorable member of society by turning your parents in. And if you can break up that trust, where now an individual doesn't know who they can trust, who is the enemy. And we talked about this, how they do that in cults. In, in cults, they, they purposely make sure that you block your family. You, you excommunicate your family if they don't come along with the cult party line, with the cult ideology. You block them out. And then the cult says, your family's not safe. We are a safe place. But then that same cult creates violence against you and fear and intimidation against you, which causes you to want to run, but you don't have any safe place to run. So you run back to the party because you've already excommunicated your family. But if you can break down those family ties where everyone's a village, if you, if everyone's your comrade, well, then no one's your comrade. If everyone's your friend, then no one's your friend. If everyone is your, your lover, well, then no one's your lover. Because you could be betrayed at any point, and that sows fear and distrust. In North Korea today, they have these reporting systems where, where every group of seven has someone watching them, and everyone's watching each other, and this whole chain of reporting systems, because they've broken down the family unit. This is, this is a, a dangerous, dangerous tactic in ideology. That is all framed in this, well, because we love children, because we love this minority or that minority, we're going to champion them, just like the Communist Party championed the workers, just like the Communist Party championed the the peasants, only for their own nefarious gain. And once they were done using that political identity group, in in the case of Communist China, that, that Communist China, that class, once they were done using that class, They pushed that class away and moved on to the next class that could help them achieve their ideals. 
And we're going, we're, we're seeing this today and we're going to see this continue unless by the grace of God, it implodes or it stops or we stand up and speak truth. In closing, when we look at Maoist communist China, we can see the same tactics being used, destroying monuments, destroying history, attacking religious moral value, undermining the family unit, destroying capitalism, labeling capitalism as as a cancer and wicked and evil, and anyone that is is born into a certain race is automatically complicit in these evil acts. And unless you admit your guilt, you are part of the system. Unless you admit and go along with the mob, lockstep, you are a part of this evil, tyrannical system, and everyone that you are related to is also a part of it. And if you have someone that you're related to that doesn't fall lockstep with the party line, you need to cut them out of your life, just as they would in a cult. Just as they would in a cult. And like I said, it doesn't matter the size. But this is what happens in small cults. And this is what happened in communist China. And this is what's happening today among political movements. That if you have anyone that disagrees, if you have anyone that is straight, white, male, they're automatically complicit in in a system of power. And they are guilty not based on their actions, but they're guilty based on the very fact that according to class origin theory, that one's nature is determined by the class or gender or color of their skin into which one is born. These are dangerous ideas. The reason that we're talking about this is because these ideas are manifesting themselves again across the globe today just under a different banner, under different terms, but it's the same totalitarian cult-like practices, cult-like ideologies, where they attack the family unit, where, where the family is not safe, where you are, in communist China, you were praised and rewarded for being the most vocal, the loudest person to call people out on their, their anti-revolutionary reactionist group, level, ideology. You were praised if you turned your family members in. And the same thing is happening today. You are praised if you're calling people out, if you're labeling people as racist. You are are praised if you are a social justice warrior and you're you're a quote-unquote ally. You're praised. But there is another agenda going on. And it is not just as in communist China. It wasn't the the way they came to power, as we talked about. When they needed the workers, they praised the workers that the working class is the the most, you know, prestige class in all of China. When it was the, the farmer peasants, they'd say the peasants are the most, you know, noteworthy class in China. We need you. And then after they used them to get their power, 
They pushed them to the side and essentially made them slaves to the system. The same thing happened with the working class. The same thing happened time and time and time and time again. And the same thing is happening today. And we need to protect ourselves. We need to stand up and have independent thought. We need to not bow to the mob of these struggle sessions. We need to not give up our morality. We need to fight for the sanctity of our family. We need to fight and protect our family units. Because if we do not, if we do not defend the foundation and the history of our beliefs, of our our families, of our, our, our religious moral ideologies, if we do not defend those, history will be forgotten and we will find ourselves in a very, very similar place to Maoist China in the future. We must defend ourselves against these ideologies today. That's all for this episode. I would, I would love to hear any of your thoughts or questions from this episode or any of the other episodes. You can WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero. I would love to hear your questions. Also, my book, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting. It is not about this topic of totalitarian ideologies, but it is a book that I wrote when I felt stuck, where I I felt like all of my metrics were broken and off, and I was trying to find how do you take steps forward in the world? Because I had built an algorithm for myself thinking that if I am busy, that I am productive, that I am fruitful. And it turns out that's not true. And I, I learned how to focus my life along things that actually matter. So if you're feeling stuck, this is a great book for you. Anchor the discipline to stop drifting. The link is in the show notes. Finally, remember, you are a change maker and you are a truth liver. You are someone that lives in the truth and walks it out. You are a person that is not afraid to think for yourself, to ask questions, and to live with a moral compass. Go out and own the future.